Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the international editor with Adweek. And with me, as always, is Shannon Miller, our creative and inclusion editor. Shannon, always great to, to get to chat with you. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest uh, one of our beloved colleagues, Catherine Lundstrom, who recently took on a new position. Uh, she's been with Adweek for a while and has been one of our most read, uh, most popular writers, uh, just a phenomenal writer, may I say, and has now taken on a new beat. Uh, I would argue the most important beat, not just at Adweek, uh, but honestly, within all of journalism. Uh, Catherine is our sustainability reporter now. Uh, so, Catherine, uh, Catherine, welcome. Welcome to the show. We are going to be talking about sustainability today. So obviously, you are the the number one person at Adweek we wanted to bring on board. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to chat sustainability. Well, so normally we have one very specific uh, kind of story or big news event or something we want to talk about. Uh, we have quite a few sustainability things have come up. Uh, you know, it's one of those where uh, making a dedicated beat around a topic certainly helps in that front. But we've also just had a lot of issues coming up uh, in the last few weeks. We've got two stories, uh, one from Catherine, one from myself in this week's uh, issue of Adweek. And uh, so it just seemed like a good time to kind of have you on and talk about some of the bigger issues. I'm really fascinated by how your perspective on sustainability has changed, how it's going to change in terms of issues you learn about. I think there's a lot of things we know as consumers, right? And that we know is just kind of people generally aware of, of some of the major issues in sustainability. But um, first, before we kind of get into that, how it changes your perspective on the issues that maybe people don't think about day to day, tell us first how this position came about. This is something you had proposed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was first hired in late 2019 as a breaking news reporter um, and then kind of, you know, was a generalist for quite a while, had a lot of time to think about, you know, the different areas that the ad industry touches and all the ways that um, marketing intersects with our lives and kind of was just sitting back and thinking what 
in this world, like what is my ideal beat to cover? Um, and then came up with the sustainability pitch um, because, you know, I guess the, the, the pithy way to say it is like, you know, if we don't have a planet, we don't have anything, but it does just feel like as soon as I started thinking about, you know, oh, it'd be so nice if we had dedicated coverage in this area to kind of cut through some of the bullshit and, um, you know, build, build, uh, build some, some more serious reporting around, um, sustainability initiatives. It just felt like every day there was something that confirmed that this was the most important thing (laughs) to be thinking about right now. Um, so yeah, I guess it kind of felt like then it was snowballing and, um, the momentum it just picked up. It feels like, um, yeah, it's it's the thing that touches every everything that we do, and um, it kind of is the <laughs> the crucial topic of today. Yeah, and I, and I feel like there's so much that's arisen just in the past two years. Honestly, since the pandemic began, uh, I think people have had more time, more opportunity. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I feel like there's a lot of initiatives that have started in that time period. Uh, I've had several times where I've kind of started asking questions like, I wonder if there's an organization that's trying to do this. I wonder if there's a movement to do this. And then I find out there is, and it's only six months mm-hmm. old. You know, it, it feels, I don't know. It does. It, are you sensing that there has been this kind of, I think also the sense of urgency around the climate crisis is yeah. maybe more, more to do with that than anything, but it feels like there is this momentum right now that I I think I feel like even a few years ago we didn't have yeah yeah I mean I agree I mean and this isn't something that you know I studied for a long time I have friends that have been in this space for for forever you know and and that's not me but um but it has been something that it's always been in the back of my mind but then I guess I would fall into that same camp um as all of these people who are kind of um I feeling compelled to bring that issue more to the center of whatever work it is that we're doing. Um, I guess, you know, it's hard, it's hard not to just think about all of the um, climate related disasters that we've all been watching and living through and, you know, experiencing over the last couple of years. And, you know, the way that we're kind of, the pandemic did give us a lot of time to sit back and think about, Um, what systems we're participating in and um, who's responsible for what and how, how we want to, how we want to engage with all of those systems and um, yeah, push for, I don't know, better work from different people and do better work ourselves. I don't know. Well, one of the issues that I, I do credit the pandemic for helping advance. It, you know, the thing with with the climate crisis, with sustainability, is that a lot of times the scope of solutions that are required to address these are vast. Mm-hmm. And we are not a – we are such an iterative culture. Marketing is such an iterative industry and, and just capitalism in general just wants to do things achingly slowly. And you often just don't have people willing to make the kind of – you know, really the, these these leaps forward that would be needed to do that. One area where I think we did see that is with uh, production of commercials, uh, commercial production. And, and I'm, I'm sure this is true as well for parts of Hollywood. But, you know, once the lockdowns really kicked on uh, for the pandemic, 
Uh, you couldn't, you know, traveling. I used to work at an agency. Anyone who's listening to this who's worked at an agency knows or work on the brand side or production knows that commercial production is kind of a everybody goes, like as many people as can go, go to the shoot, even if all you really do is kind of mill around Video Village. Like you, you know, you had clients there for questionable reasons sometimes about whether they really needed to be. Um, and, you know, people would go and it was fun. It was like your junket. It was some in some ways kind of a reward for working on a project. Um, and then, of course, all that ground to a halt, right, with, you know, with pandemic and you couldn't travel. And so suddenly production switches to remote. And just like video conferencing, the technology's been there. You know, it's like none of this was new. We just had never bothered. So the technology was kind of crappy. Like, remember, like, you know, before we all settled on Zoom, those early days of the pandemic of like everyone trying different video chat software. And it's like, oh, these actually kind of suck when, when there's a high demand for it. And, uh, it, you know, production just really had to pivot to this remote space. And that's not to say everyone loves it, but it's doable. Uh, and so the story I wrote in this week's issue is about uh, a movement called Green the Bid. Uh, some may recognize that name from uh, Free the Bid and Free the Work. Uh, and then that phrasing has kind of been used in, in um, other initiatives around production. Uh, Free the Bid really started out as a way to get more women and people of color in, in positions of leadership in production, like directing uh, specifically. And Green the Bid is about making production greener. And... Those resources were already out there. There are, there are consultants who specialize in helping productions be green. Uh, they just didn't necessarily have the ton of demand because they weren't being called for by the at the client level. Like the clients weren't saying, we insist on a carbon neutral production. We insist on following green standards. And so in the story, I walk through uh, the, the many checklists. You can go to Free the Bid. All their checklists are free to download. Anyone can get them. They're actually super helpful. I would say even if you don't do production, there's just a lot of things you don't think about of like how to lessen your impact uh, and by, by working on just about any project or workplace. Um, but the, you know, the biggest issue is just getting the clients on board. And that's where they're trying to do. They got, it was started by a few folks who work uh, at Facebook uh, and partnering with a few other people in, who work in production. So Facebook signed on, Ford signed on. But the, the biggest thing and the hardest thing is going to be just not traveling. Like one round trip from New York to LA and back is 1.5 metric tons of carbon emissions. That's four months worth of driving a car. You know, it's it's a lot. That's just to fly one person there and back. Um, and so I think I'm really glad we had the pandemic to kind of show us we can do it. But there was a lot of debate. Uh, and so, so, Katie, on that front, how are you feeling about do you think people will continue to not travel and will continue because that would sure have a, have a super positive impact? Or do you think people are just going to kind of be rushing to get back to normal on this and, and other issues of you know, where we used to burn a bunch of emissions? I don't know. I think that's a hard one because it does seem like the same people who really care about the the climate and really care about the planet also want to see it all, you know, um, myself included. Um, but I don't know. I think that's, that's one of those things where I feel like it's going to be something that's kind of an in-between as we're moving forward, thinking about like where you can make some um, compromises and um, make some smart decisions that will, you know, I mean, like Google just came out with that, um, with their new initiative that when you search for a flight, it gives you um, more sustainable options right there. 
um, in your search, if there's a train that you can take instead, or if there's a better way to get there, or a, um, you know, more, a, a greener, greener way to travel, um, they want to make that, you know, right there at the search. So I, I guess, I guess I see it as things like, things like that, people kind of keeping that in mind as they're still doing the things that they want to do and maybe not traveling if they don't absolutely need to. Shannon, where do you fall on this, you know, really pretty, pretty frequent debate recently of like, why am I sorting my, you know, one through four plastics and going through all these like triple backflips of what I'm going to buy in the store when it all accounts for like 0.01% of the of the emissions <laughs> and it's the fossil fuels it's these industries it's farming it's all these mm-hmm. other things what, what you know where do you i i'm kind of torn on that whole issue because i'm still the the nerd that's like really going down to the micro level of what i can do but on the other hand mm-hmm. I, I i get that frustration yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it just feels like such a cop out to say it's a really complicated topic, but it really is. It's incredibly complicated to put it in practice. And when you see sort of those small numbers, you don't feel entirely incentivized to rearrange your life, essentially, because when you realize how much of your day to day is entrenched in waste, you do realize that it does Um, include quite an overhaul to switch to a more sustainable life and feeling like what you're doing is like less than a speck of a drop in a bucket might feel like you are not um, contributing enough or like whatever you do, it's just never going to be enough. So why bother? Um, However, like the trickle effect, I think of, setting the example of in, of encouraging others around you to join you, I think is um, important enough to at least give it a shot. It, it's tough. Um, and when you start to really sit and think about how much sustainab- sustainability impacts every facet of our lives and just how much um, intersects with this particular movement, it can get a little overwhelming. Um, but you, I, I'm just a proponent of you have to start somewhere. So if that means that while you're researching, you're kind of reducing your plastic w- waste, then then do that. I, I just think that I don't know if we're at a point where not doing anything is going to work anymore. <laughs> like, shit's bad. <laughs> like, you have to kind of make, you have to sort of make that effort and and consider um just how can we not only make a better um earth but how it can impact our professional lives and how we can build a better in- industry because of it yeah and and i feel like f- where a lot of that attention seems to be going right now is toward fossil fuels i would say justly mm-hmm. you know that's an industry mm-hmm. that um is really at the core of a lot of the climate crisis and and you know it's I can certainly understand, uh, you know, how they've done what they've done and why they've, uh, you know, kind of become this core part of when you think of everything that's made from petroleum, right? And just like what a central part of our and just plastics and everything else. It all begins with fossil fuels. Uh, And so, Katie, tell us about there is this movement and it seems to be growing. It's still, I would say, somewhat nascent, but this growing movement to really kind of position fossil fuels as 
if nothing else in the marketing world, a client you don't want to be associated with publicly in the vein of how every ad agency used to have tobacco accounts. And it would have seemed ridiculous to say we're not going to take on tobacco accounts. Uh, but these days, very rare in the United States that you would hear uh, most agencies say, yeah, we're going to work on Philip Morris. We're going to work on tobacco. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this movement to kind of bring that same effect to fossil fuels. Yeah, so there's this group called Clean Creatives that's asking um, ad agencies and young creatives to sign this pledge not to work with fossil fuels, um, kind of pointing to this number that fossil fuels as an industry accounts for like 74% of the greenhouse gases that are produced. Um, and just, you know, kind of pointing out that if, if that doesn't get under control, then like everything else that we're doing kind of to your point, Shannon, about like how there's just so many pieces to like trying to think about how to live in this, in these systems in an, in an ethical way um, with regard to the climate. Um, they're kind of saying, look, if these guys don't do something, then like there's really no point for, for all the rest of it, you know? Um, so they're asking ad agencies to stop Stop working with fossil fuel companies using that comparison to the tobacco industry, which I mean, I've kind of been digging into that um, that comparison and it's fascinating, you know, like that was a decades long fight. And I feel like the the um, activists who are working um, in this, the clean creatives activists and the folks who are trying to to push agencies away from fossil fuels are in the midst of a similarly long fight. You know, there's going to be so many layers to it. Some of these um, fossil fuel companies are facing um, legal challenges. Um, led, um, some states attorneys general and um, from, you know, courts overseas that are um, kind of attacking their greenwashing campaigns. And it all kind of, it's, it's, there's so many pieces, right? But I think um, the the what Clean Creative specifically is trying to do, yeah, is is to push push ad agencies away from that, pointing to also the you know young talent is not is not wild about the idea of working on um, fossil fuel accounts. I spoke with somebody who was telling me a story about um, an early job early in their career. Um, they they were, it was their first job with an ad agency or their first potential job. And in the interview, they were asked, um, would you, would you be willing to work on a tobacco account? And it was kind of this, um, moral dilemma for this person. Like I need this job. I want to break into this really competitive industry, but like, can I do this? And will this jeopardize my job, um, job opportunity if, I say, no, I don't want to work on a tobacco account. In the end, she said, no, she wouldn't work on a tobacco account and she got hired. Um, so I think it's like this interesting kind of moral bellwether that I think fossil fuels might be on the way there, um, pushed along by activists like clean creatives and um, and like Greenpeace and some of the other um organizations that are really pushing hard for this and some of the agencies who've already, you know, taken this pledge and kind of built their whole identity around the idea of kind of purpose-driven marketing. Um, yeah, I, I 
it does look like there's a lot of momentum in that direction um, at the same time. Yeah, it's a big, huge industry that they're talking about. Yeah, and I, th- I think something that's that I struggle with, I think we all struggle with, although it's easy to it's easy to tweet something about this. It's very hard to make a life choice around this is cha- changing things from the inside. Right. This is this is a perhaps a a moralistic internal greenwashing that we all do of, of just like, um, well, I'm working with it. Sure, I work in marketing. I work in this industry, but I'm an advocate for good. You know, I'm I'm working through the system. I do believe in that. I mean, obviously, I wear, I've worked in advertising and and work in media, and you know, I don't think there's a whole lot to be said by being on the outside and being like, people should not support fossil fuels. I'm like, cool. Do you, do you not? You know, do you not drive a car? Do you not ride in anything with mm-hmm. diesel? Or because awesome if you don't. I'm not saying I don't believe you, but I'm just saying if you can live by that, it ain't easy. Um. And so, and then it's like, you get into, oh, okay, well, that's why I have an electric car. You want to know who's the number one polluter in my state? Uh, the power company. Like, such a vehement polluter. Like, they generate way more power than they need, and they sell it. And one of the worst, you know, pollution-generating factories in America is the power plant right outside of my, you know, my, my hometown or my town here. And so, you know, I, when I've thought about getting an electric car, I'm like, that would be great not to produce emissions, but I'd be charging it off just burning the hell out of some coal. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, it's very, I think, overly simplistic to just yeah. from the outside be like, nah, like, you know, just I'm not going to use any of this. Um, but on the other hand, we've seen when we try to highlight people who are doing honestly, really impressive sustainability initiatives within fossil fuels companies, within companies that have massive emissions footprints. Uh, We just, you know, we and they get shredded in social media sometimes, you know, and people would be like, how dare you? How dare you like credit a company like Shell with making, you know, with sustainability? And it's like, man, if you want to make a difference, like I may sound naive here, but it's like if you if you want to make a difference, like my ability on an individual level to make a, an impact on the world pretty small. If I was running entire programs out of at a fuel company where I could reduce their emissions by like millions and billions of pounds, I'd be like, I don't know, I, I, maybe that's worth doing. What, yeah, what have you experienced? I guess I mean I think Shell is an interesting example, right? Because they are they have been ordered by a Dutch court to. Um, to change their actual business model if they're going to advertise the way that they do. So I think when, if you're talking about it as an advertising question, um, then you have these companies that are kind of like, it's not like they're really greenwashing their operations. It's like they're greenwashing their brand. And then they're, they're saying, you know, we, we deeply care about these things. That's their that's their whole message um, publicly. We are transitioning. We are all in for a like transition to a green future. And then in Shell's actual investors report, it says we're not on track to meet those targets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that's that's kind of where that's kind of where clean creatives is coming from. I think to be like, there's a, there's a, a serious hypocrisy here and ad agencies have a hand in it. 
by working with these companies or for these companies. So, I mean, you know, yeah, there's obviously there's like things that need to happen within these large corporations um, to move them towards a more sustainable to a sustainable business model. But when they're saying when their whole external messaging is about something that takes up less than 1% of their budget, um, that to me feels pretty misleading. Um, and, and like the definition of greenwashing. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. Uh, Shannon, I know that you and I both wanted to talk about fashion while we were here, because that is another industry that generates just a staggering amount of, of emissions mm. between the process and, and water usage. I mean, it's one of those where you can, we don't even have time to get into all of it, but if folks really just start looking into it, luckily it's quantified. It's all out mm. there. The, the impact of the fashion industry and the level of emissions, they're, they're projected to rise, I believe, another um, – I don't remember the exact number, but they're projected to rise. It's not a problem that's mm-hmm. necessarily getting better. Uh, what are what are some of your thoughts on kind of where the the fashion industry is on sustainability and, wh- and where it needs to go? And then obviously, Katie's got a piece in this week's issue we can talk about as well. I feel like the fashion industry is not only behind; they make it really difficult for their consumers to um, sort of consume fashion ethically and responsibly as well. Um, the thing with, with sustainability in general, it's not such an isolated issue where we can, as we mentioned earlier, have these really quick fixes, um, that sort of apply to everybody because sustainability, um, and the look of sustainability and the ability to live sustainably, um, is impacted by class. It's impacted by race. It's impacted by, um, economics, um, even just things like body positivity, body acceptance, um, health, all of that impacts sustainability. And when you talk about fashion, um, it, they, it's an industry where it is just, not only is it generating a ton of waste, it m- makes it really hard for um a lot of us who care about fashion and care about sort of where our fashion goes once we outgrow it, um, it makes it very hard for us to be able to move, sus- move sustainably. Like for, for instance, um, you know, I, I think a lot about sustainability and fashion and how it's going to impact um, plus size folks, because you have a lot of brands that are priding themselves on making sustainable products. And then you ask them, cool, what are your ranges and sizing? And it stops at a hard XL or a hard XXL. And it's like, okay, cool. What about everybody else? Um, with one of my favorite brands um, that really emerged for me out of this summer was the Girlfriend Collective. Because not only was it, is it gender inclusive, it is size inclusive. And all of their clothing is made entirely of recyclable products. And their delivery, their methods of deliver, delivery are green as well. So that's a company that is really making their mission um, not to, to not only produce sustainably, but to make sure that their consumer base is wide-reaching enough so that everybody can take part in it. Um, and the opposite end of that would be, um, Catherine, I think you reported on this um, previously, um, Kindly, which is a great company um, that is making lingerie and, and underwear sustainably. But when 
they asked for my size to send out like a sample. Um, they didn't have it. And when we were, they were asked, you know, when do you foresee yourself making larger sizes? It was kind of like this vague, oh, we're definitely working towards that in the future. And so you have to ask, well, what's stopping you? And that's not to put them on the spot or say they were a bad company, but it's these little things that really affect everything. And then you talk about um, reselling. How many times have any of us tried to resell our clothes? And a lot of them won't take them back because the label isn't um, palatable enough. So what happens to all of my like cute Target clothes that I can't wear anymore that someone else can use? It's it just affects everything. And I think that fashion is really behind um, because it's just not thinking thoroughly enough. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a huge problem to your point about trying to resell clothes and not being able to, they're just, you know, the cheap way to make clothes right now is with plastic, you know, like some mm-hmm. version of synthetic material that will not hold up in the long term. And then we don't have recycling systems that can even handle these clothes. So there's nowhere for them to go except for into a landfill, or then we donate them to um, some, you know, donate them to a charity that we think is going to do something with them. And then they end up on the shores of Ghana. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's, there's just, the systems are not there to handle the waste of fast fashion. Right. And um, that's, I mean, it, even, even with, um, I think ThreadUp is doing incredible things with their, you know, massive warehouse that can seriously like move all these clothing, all these pieces of clothing through and like get them reworn. And, you know, every time you pass it on to a new person, the footprint goes down, you know, because, which is, which is great. And it's kind of like, I, I feel like it's a step in the right direction, but, um, it's still, I think, somewhere around 50 some percent of the clothing um, that's sent back to them, they can actually resell and the Mm. rest of it, they have to do something with. um, So they send it to a recycling partner. And, you know, that's where these things get lost is when sends to a recycling partner, the recycling partner doesn't have the, you know, I'm speaking hypothetically here, but, you know, we've seen, we've seen headlines that show that things end up in a landfill and, Oregon or something instead right. of, um, you know, where, where we thought that they were going when we tried to dispose of them responsibly. It's just, it's just that we don't have the systems to recycle. And maybe there's not a way to do that, which means that we really need to address the way that we're making and producing clothing. Um, mm-hmm. have you heard of Miranda Bennett studios? It's a, um, like a sustainable fashion. She's a, fashion designer in who has a studio here in Austin and Hmm. um, her whole thing is like starting with really um, starting with materials that are sustainably produced and created and then like eliminating as much waste as possible in the process and making clothing that can you know change with your body over time it's really incredible it Um, seems like the gold standard to me but I'm not going to (laughs) I'm going to that site right now. <laughs> well, so w- before we run out of time, I definitely want to make sure that you tell us about because you have a related story in this week's issue. So tell tell us about that. Oh yeah, the the resale story. That um, yeah, I, I I mean I think it's that. So basically, what what these platforms like ThreadUp um, and uh, there's another one called Trove. 
they're what they're doing is basically partnering with brands because so there's there are ways for you to sell your clothing online use this kind of big um you know online thrift store to to get your clothes resold right instead of like taking them to a a store with a physical footprint but for the brands that um for brands that have you know more you know maybe more um more durable clothes that actually can have a viability in a resale market like you know Levi's Lululemon is one of the ones that's doing this um Madewell is doing it um some higher end brands like Eileen Fisher is one of them they're partnering with these companies like ThreadUp or like Trove kind of stays more in the background and to like have a branded resale so that it's actually you go to the brand's website and you can find used stuff. I mean, REI has done this too and Patagonia, um, but kind of letting, letting brands, um, letting brands in on the whole resale thing is sort of what, what these um, third-party platforms are doing and kind of creating a whole new revenue stream for these brands also. Um, and, and kind of giving them a little bit more, you know, legitimacy, um, a little bit more credibility behind their sustainability claims in the eyes of consumers who care about that too. Well, there are so, so many, I can, I'm like sitting here with like 10, 15 other topics I really want to ask Catherine about and honestly just talk about. I, I think one I'll throw out just because it's somewhat topical and I'm sure we'll long have forgotten about it by the time we have another conversation like this. But you know that article that was going around, was it the New York Times or New York Magazine, but it was the one about um, the environmental impact of tote bags. And the end, you know, is basically saying that you'd have to use it a thousand times or whatever. You know, I don't, I don't have the numbers, but, but that it's not a sustainable product. And and the, it's a great story, um, in the sense of there's some really great reporting in there. It really does make you think about supply chain. That's really, that's really what it's about. You know, it's about the, how many totes, how many like publications and places are like known for giving a tote and people want them. And it's like seen as a good status thing, but the water usage, the just a sheer amount of impact required to create those to meet this demand is really destructive uh, in its own way. That said, I was so good. I don't think I've ever been more conflicted about an, a sustainability article because like once a month I, I live I live on a creek, you know, and so like once a month I'll walk down the creek with my kids and, and a trash and some trash bags, right? And I'll just gather up and it's just you can probably picture uh, it's like what a burger styrofoam cups and just countless uh plastic bags. You know, just that is that is literally what fifty percent of the trash I pull out of there is cups and bags. And I've like I've never found a, a tote. <laughs> <laughs> in there. I've, I've never found a bunch of like fish trying to swim around a tote. And so, you know what I mean? I know that's a very anecdotal thing and everything in the story is accurate, I'm sure. But I was just like, I get it. I, I see the impact there. But like, it's a hard takeaway to be like, well, I'm not going to go back to plastic. I mean, <laughs> I think it just speaks to the complexity of all of these issues, right? Because like you have water usage in production is one thing to think about, like the actual, um, you know, the raw materials that go into the product are another thing to think about. And then the end life is another thing to think about. And they're also, they're also 
they all require different actions and they often require actions, not from the consumer, but um, from, you know, from the companies that are, that are producing these things with, Mm -hmm. without any thought to the end life. And I think, I mean, that's one of the most interesting themes I think that I've seen in the discourse around trying to like address all of these systems with a more of a thought to the climate um, is, is actually pressuring um, companies to think about the end life and to maybe contribute to um, the systems that need to be developed in order to handle the end life of their products. Um, And yeah, I, I think plastic is obviously plastic bags is a, is a huge one because we just, we don't have a good way to recycle those and those styrofoam Whataburger cups are another one. Um, Texas monthly just had a great piece about that Whataburger cup. Um, Yes. I like, I love Whataburger, (laughs) but I hate their cups. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, Oh man. Yeah. It's like that. And, um, and Bojangles where I live, those are the two cups I find every (laughs) single damn time I go down there. I'm just going to tell one quick story just because I think this is something that fascinates me about the way that sustainability can go when I was uh, a long time ago. So like 2000, 2001, when I was just starting out my career, uh, I wanted to buy stocks. It was a bit like kind of this past year or two when people, when young people kind of got into buying stocks, same thing was going on. Like those stock buying websites were just coming out. They were just starting to exist. So I was like, yeah, let's take the very meager amount of money we have and let's buy some stock. So I bought a few shares in a few companies uh, you may have heard of a few of them. Uh, one of them promptly went out of business. That was Palm, the maker of the Palm Pilot. <laughs> that was a poor, that was a poor decision. Uh, Krispy Kreme, which has done very well, but uh, also got delisted because the Atkins diet came along right after that, and everyone stopped eating sugar. So that was mm-hmm. that was o, o for two on those. Then I picked up a little company called Netflix. <laughs> that mailed DVDs to your house, uh, which I thought was novel and cool. So I bought some shares of Netflix. I did okay with that one. Uh, sold it in 2005. Oh, good. Not, yeah. Not, and thus, I'm I'm working at a magazine like a loser <laughs> instead of sitting on my fortune. Um, but, uh, but the fourth one is the one I wanted to talk about. I bought stock in a company called Green Mountain Coffee. Uh, Catherine, have you heard of this company? They yes, no longer- I have. So you might know the spoiler, (laughs) the ending of this, but I bought uh, something like 20 shares, 25 shares of Green Mountain Coffee because it was a sustainable, I don't know if we used that term back then, but it was a environmentally friendly coffee company. And I'm very active in coffee. I worked at coffee shops for years. And so I really wanted to support a company that was finding more environmentally friendly and fair trade ways to make coffee. Uh, So I... You know, I, I own this stock for several years. I was proud of it. It split two or three times, which uh, if you don't know much about stocks is great. That's good. It's what you want mm-hmm. to happen. And I sold it and made like quite a bit of money. I mean, not like not a lot, but I tripled, you know, quadrupled my investment in it. And um, and then shortly after I sold it, uh, they bought a failing equipment manufacturer uh, that was was making single shot uh, coffee makers uh, called Kerrig and they changed their name to Kerrig when it became their number one product. And now they are, they are Kerrig Dr. Pepper based in Plano, Texas, not too far from uh, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And um, 
they i mean i'm i i don't know the stats but i i'm not a fan of (laughs) k-cups i kind of kind of hate them and uh i'm just like what happened to you you've changed man (laughs) (laughs) so it just goes to show today's environmentally uh, friendly coffee company is tomorrow's k-cup manufacturer there you go capitalism (laughs) well on that note uh (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening to this advertising podcast. Um, Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, I definitely cannot encourage folks strongly enough to check out Catherine Lundstrom's uh, byline on Adweek. You can just look that up and look up our sustainability coverage. We have a whole category of articles around sustainability, uh, and you're going to see more and more of it uh, because I I won't say it's just that, like, Catherine's writing is improving our coverage. I think it just it it radiates out like it encourages the rest of us it helps the rest of us discover more and more sustainability stories uh i really think it's having a huge impact and uh, i just want to uh congratulate you on creating this beat and really jumping into mm-hmm. it with both feet and it's, it's been awesome you're you're you know a real a real point of pride for adweek <laughs> well thank you i'm so excited to be working on this stuff it's a it's a blast can i tell like a quick super quick story about how good at her job Catherine is like super quick these are my favorites yeah so um Catherine is really making sure that this beat is something that is um substantial and really holds the industry accountable and I remember I, I got a sustainability pitch and I get like a few of them um sort of scattered about um and I couldn't really do anything with it and I was just like I, I don't know if I really care about this I, I don't want to like put the brand on blast or anything, but it was basically one of those things where it's like, peel our label and you plant it and you'll, you'll grow daffodils or, or just something <laughs> along those lines. I was just like, do you want this? Like, is this something that you want to do? And she was just like, I really want to dig into how companies are making like an actual substantial change and not doing these like one-off stunts, um, which I was like, damn, that's a really good answer. That is a really, that's the best no I've heard. So it's just, I just think it's really cool to have somebody that really cares about this beat. Um, not only report really good stuff, but like use media um, and use our platform as a tool um, of accountability in like a really genuine way. So yeah, all of that to say, Catherine's super dope and she's good at her job and you should pitch her really worthwhile stuff. Thank you so much. That was so sweet. Uh Well, that is the best possible note to end on. Also encourage folks, if you're into these topics, uh, check out Green the Bid, that movement that I wrote about in this week's issue. Uh, uh, We barely even scratched the surface of what they're getting into uh, and some of the issues they bring up. Their website's got a ton of resources. So if you're involved in production, which if you're in marketing, you're involved in. So like they have an entire checklist for how art directors can be more sustainable. I mean, it really, it goes in some fascinating places. Uh, So strongly recommend checking that one out as well. Um, All right. Well, we're out of time, but I can't just, I'm just so happy to have had Catherine on talk about this, to have you on the team and Shannon, always a pleasure. Our, uh, our theme music is by home. Uh, This week's episode is produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, If you haven't already, please leave this review on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com for adweek. I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? 
Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.